hypothetical where like, hey, you know, using this distributed model, all of these risks about market opacity go away, right? You wanna know what the price for something is? Look on the chain. Okay, well then then the government doesn't need to force companies to do the things it's been forcing companies to do to, to address that issue. Not because we're going to tolerate less protection for consumers. The consumers are getting the protection. They're just getting it from technology rather than from the rules. The question becomes, what do we need to have orderly markets, consumer protection and capital formation in this environment and can we pare back some regulation to make it easier because the technology is helping? Welcome to the Mercatus Center Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. Depending on who you ask, initial coin offerings, or ICOs, are a scam, a brilliant new way for cryptocurrency companies to raise startup money, a sneaky way to get around securities regulations, or some combination of the above. What we do know for sure is that ICOs are garnering a lot of attention these days. China outright banned them last year, and the SEC successfully recently launched its own Howie Coin, a fake ICO webpage meant to steer potential investors away from scams. To talk about what these things actually are and what they mean for the future of capital markets, we're joined by three of the best in the field. Brian Knight is the director of the Mercatus Center's program on financial regulation and a Mercatus policy download veteran. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me. Chris Brummer is a Georgetown law professor and a leading academic in the financial technology space. Great to have you here, Chris. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Lydia Bayoud is a fintech reporter for Bloomberg Law, where she covers the latest market and regulator activity on ICOs and a host of other issues. Welcome aboard, Lydia. Glad to be here. I'm going to start by asking the question that I usually dread asking when I'm in a room with cryptocurrency experts, but it has to be done. Can someone explain to me in 30 seconds or less at a fairly basic level just what ICOs are and why we care enough about them to drag you all in here on a Friday morning? Okay, well, I'll, I'll start uh, and hope that people will bail me out. So an ICO is a means of offering a certain right to people in exchange for money. And the money can be US dollars, it can be Bitcoin, it could be Ethereum, it could be some other currency. And a lot of the fight is over, well, what is the right you are offering? Is it a right to future profits? Is it a right to use a product or service down the line? Is it a right to have some valuable item that you're then going to go and sell off to somebody else because they're going to go use it? And that question and the the problems with answering that question are part of the reason things are so messed up right now. Well, and just to piggyback on that, I think it's, you know, that's more the consumer side, but from the side of the folks who are issuing uh, a token or doing an ICO, it's also for them, uh, many see it as a great way to raise capital to launch their project, whatever it might be. I think that's a great synopsis. And it, one of the challenges I think that Brian really picks up on is that even when the definitions are offered for different aspects of the ICO space. And we'll get into this a little bit more, but there are always different kinds of innovations that that test those definitions. But ultimately, ICOs are a lot like crowdfunded ventures. But instead of receiving a particular product or a video game application in advance, you're, you're receiving a right. You're receiving a certain kind of financial product, potentially, or um, uh, a, a product that represents some kind of asset. And the question is, what exactly is this thing that you're receiving, and how should it be regulated? And it's usually tied to efforts to raise money for a development project, usually some kind of uh, digitally-based innovation. The natural question then is, these sound a lot like initial public offerings. So when a company wants to go public, it sells stock to people. Are ICOs like IPOs, or are there important differences here? Well, first off, I think you hit the nail on the head that it sounds like 
IPOs. I don't think that was a mistake. And, you know, the part of the problem is if you evoke the securities laws, you call forth the attention of the securities regulators. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, as Lydia and Chris point out, right, it's, it's being used as a, as a vehicle for firms or individuals or teams or, or whatever to try to get money on the front end to build something or, or, or develop something that is going to be valuable in some way, shape, or form to the people who gave money in the first place. And maybe it is, hey, we're going to build this really cool distributed online storage space system to compete with Dropbox. And you can pre-buy your you know few gigabytes of space now, and then when we build it, you cash the token in and you get the space. Sometimes it's, well, when you buy, you know buying into this, you then get a vote in how we develop this system. Well, that kind of looks like a share, or like, you know, oh, you have some ownership interest or some control interest in, in this firm. And so you have this digital technology smashing into this, these, this established legal framework that wasn't perfectly clear prior to all of this digital disruption. And the digital disruption, I would argue, is really showing the pressure points of, of where there are questions and where there are issues in, in between the different categories of things. Because, you know, you could be like, is it a pre, does it look like the pre-sale of a product or service? Does it look like a corporate security, either a debt security or an equity security? Does it look like a commodity, which, you know, is traditionally thought of as things like gold and pork bellies? And depending on how the thing functions and what sort of rights it conveys, and all, that's going to de be determinant. And it isn't just Importantly, it isn't just the firm that makes that choice. You don't just sort of elect. It's you look at the, the facts and circumstances and the underlying economic reality of the transaction, and you may have a different opinion from the regulators. The, the firm issuing the coin may have a different opinion from the people buying it. So it can get pretty complex pretty fast. And I think everyone knows that at this point, the attention of the regulators is certainly on this space. And uh, the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission recently said that, you know, if you're doing an ICO, uh, it looks an awful lot like an IPO and that, you know, that sort of, in fact, I think he said he wants people to come in and talk with the SEC about it. So certainly it seems like the securities regulators feel that there is a great similarity there. One of the reasons why there is so much concern is that many of the people who participate in ICOs are ultimately looking for, to, to make money. Uh, and they're looking to make money uh, by pooling their resources together in order to fund, as, as Brian had mentioned, some kind of developmental stage project. And when you have that confluence of facts and circumstances together, it at least raises a suspicion amongst securities regulators that you are entering a field in which uh, securities laws are required in order to protect investors. And as a result, the securities regulators will be very inclined to pay those investments a closer look. And I know it's a little bit beyond the, the, the scope of our conversation on ICOs in particular, but I think it's also worthwhile pointing out that even if you're not considered to be engaging in a securities transaction, it's not as if that product that is ultimately offered to the public is necessarily operating in an entirely unregulated space. Uh, th that is that even if it's a commodity, as Brian had said, you know, there are means by which now, you know, the way in which it's operationalized is very different. The kinds of relationship that the regulators in that particular instance would have with uh, different infrastructures are, are very different. But there are always or, or certainly usually some kind of basic anti-fraud rules, for example, that are going to apply. 
But again, when we're talking about an ICO, we're really thinking about securities law. And so we're thinking about the 33 and the 34 Act. Well, I think one of the interesting things about ICOs is the type of investor that it is attracting. And, you know, to your point, I think securities and other regulators are justly concerned that these are bringing in Main Street investors who may not be very sophisticated or who could easily be duped by potential fraudsters in the space. And I spoke with a state regulator recently who said, you know, we in our state, we used to see all of these securities frauds targeting older folks who had money to invest. And now they're very concerned about what's happening in the cryptocurrency space because that's attracting a lot of much younger people, mostly millennials. And they're having to realize that they're focusing their enforcement actions not on sort of targeting consumer awareness among older people who have experience investing, but younger folks who, you know, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies may be their first foray into investing. And they haven't, you know, they're not on Charles Schwab or they're not, they don't necessarily have a 401k. So on the enforcement side and sort of the consumer protection side, regulators of all sorts are realizing they need to really expand their education for the public. To follow up on one thing Chris said, which is like, okay, the, the, the challenge is that this, this asset can be more than one thing, right? It can, it can actually occupy multiple different spaces, either across time, something could start off as a security and then end up becoming a commodity or a good, or it could be, you know, you know, your federal regulator may say, well, this looks like, uh, you know, we, we don't treat this as a security. And the state regulator says, yeah, but under our state law, we define security differently. And so it's a security in Texas or, or wherever. And so, you know, it is a challenging question for, you know, for legitimate firms that are really honestly trying to give people the benefit of their bargain, figuring out like, okay, if we go this route, how are we regulated? What do we need to do to be on the side of, of truth and justice? And then, of course, the fraudsters. And, you know, we should be clear that like, or at least I don't think an ICOs are inherently fraudulent, but there are a ton of fraudsters in the ICO space because it's the new hot thing. And it opens, you know, as Lydia was pointing out, it opens up new audiences and the ability to reach new audiences and then defraud them. So the regulatory uncertainty, the regulatory ambiguity around this is is a major issue that should hopefully, I mean, you, we would like to see clarity. Now, my sense is that under existing law, it may well take Congress to come in and say, look, we're going to redraw the lines a little bit just to be clear. Whether or not that's actually going to happen is a separate question. And SEC Chairman Clayton just said yesterday that, at least from the SEC standpoint, it doesn't look like they're going to be radically rewriting rules or defining or redefining uh, securities regulation or carving out specific rules just for cryptocurrencies. Ultimately, when one wants to decide whether or not an ICO involves a security, involves in turn the application of a very famous test called the Howey <coughs> test. And the Howey test is a facts and circumstances based test where you have to examine whether or not there is an investment of money with an expectation of profits, where there's a certain common pool of resources, and where there is a reliance on a promoter of that particular product. And in an ICO, usually you have these features and characteristics, but no transaction is really identical. And so there are no bright line rules in which to exclude a transaction from the regulatory from the from the regulatory perimeter from the reach of US securities laws. But instead Howey and the Supreme Court has said, you know, you have to look at the facts and circumstances and decide whether or not these specific features are present, especially when you're dealing with a more exotic product 
that departs from your traditional conception or understanding or label as a stock or a note or a bond. And I think that one of the frustrations that, that you see in the investor community, as well as amongst entrepreneurs, is that this is a fact-based inquiry. But, and there are advantages and disadvantages to having a fact-based inquiry. One of the things I've always uh, noted is that usually the writing rules for financial innovation involves a kind of trilemma. In other words, you can get uh, rules clarity, market integrity, and financial innovation, but you can't get all three of them at the same time yet. At best, you can only get two of the three. So you can have clear rules and financial innovation, but usually that means it's a kind of lighter touch approach in which you have problems of market integrity and fraud. You can have rules clarity and market integrity, uh, but that's usually in the form of a kind of broad prohibition, and so then you don't get financial innovation. Or you can have financial innovation and market integrity, but that's usually either an ad hoc approach or a highly detailed system of rules and exemptions. And I think that trying to regulate the ICO space is no different from that perspective as trying to regulate financial innovation writ large. However, the kinds of trade-offs involved in that trilemma can be a little bit different because you are dealing with such an innovative and new technology, and one that's always uh, not only deploying untested technologies, but it's always constantly evolving. And so you have this, this trilemma uh, that you see playing itself out in uh, the rules being contemplated and debated, whether or not it be on the Hill or in the commission. That's really interesting. So if that's the trilemma that regulators in the market are kind of facing, or even some version of that, I'm wondering what you all think, and you can choose to be positive or normative here, depending on how much of your opinion you want to share, but either what direction agencies are likely to take, or what direction you think agencies should take. So, I mean, maybe we'll start with the definition of a security, right? Is it time to rethink the definition of a security and change some of those bright line things, uh, or, or are there other approaches? I will push back gently on Chris a little bit with the caveat that while well, I have downloaded his his wonderful paper I have yet to read it so, <laughs> so he may ha there may be an answer on like page 20 and and I'll look dumb that wouldn't be the first time but I guess the, the thing is like I would push back a little bit on the idea that like uh, you know if, if you have good rules against fraud and you rigorously enforce them I would argue that takes you pretty far down the path of market integrity and you can still have a lot of innovation that I think would should be kind of how we should be dealing with it. Now, now I will say that's not the whole ball game, obviously. And there are things like information forcing requirements and what type of information do you need? And I think that's a huge part of this because the type of information a person needs to make a informed investment in a security is different from the type of information they need to make an informed investment in a commodity is different from the type of information they need to per make an informed purchase of a product. And so sorting that out is a big part of what we we need to do and i think howie the howie test is probably a little too vague and congress could probably profitably do some clarification that doesn't mean that that it's going to be perfect i mean you know I, like i said i want to push back gently because i think chris's insight is a good one and maybe it's just like well how much how much ambiguity are you willing to, to tolerate but like you know so i think even if we were to revise and clarify the definition of security commodity and good or service there would still be edge cases that we look at and we say, geez, boy, this is a hard one. It's just, hopefully there would be fewer of them until the next cycle of innovation comes along because I don't think distributed, I hope distributed ledgers is not peak human innovation <laughs> because none of us are on Mars yet. And, you know, 
no one has done time travel. So I'm, I'm hoping we're going to hit those two eventually too. Well, and I have I never invested in Bitcoin, so if this is the end of the road, then I feel like I've really missed the boat. Can I interest you in S and P 500 coin? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on before the SEC calls me. <laughs> you know, I think it's not, from speaking with people, I don't think it seems super likely that, especially the SEC, is going to sort of take a dramatic review of the Howey test and sort of say, you know, okay, for everything else, the Howey test works, but for this one thing, we're going to be more flexible somehow. I think absent action from Congress, and even there's a question from Congress about whether they need to further delineate who has authority over the cryptocurrency markets. And just 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 to jump in, I mean, the, you know, the, the interesting question about the Howey test is, you know, some people are saying that the Howey test, you know, should be made more clear in order to be to sort of carve out securities or excuse me, to carve out financial products from falling within the definition of of being a security. But there's also another debate that's also circulating on the hill as to whether or not you need to extend the regulatory perimeter and the application of the Howey test and to bring in certain kinds of financial products let's say like bitcoin itself that most people would assume is a commodity but to still make it subject to US securities rules and so one of the you know one of the interesting questions is particularly relating to the Howey test is it's still an open question that if one was to engage in some kind of redrafting or rethinking of that test in what direction would it move and one of the more delightful things about <laughs> Bitcoin and virtual currencies and, and the policy debates about this particular question is that it's not something that really falls upon clear ideological lines. You have people embracing positions across the spectrum, no matter really where they are. And, and it is engaging or certainly opening a space for a very interesting introspection and reflection on you know, one of the core questions of, of modern financial regulation, which is where is technology evolving and what is the interface between that technology and financial products and, and our, our established regulatory rules. One other thing to, to point out about, you know, whether or not the SEC is going to make any sort of, of changes is there's a lot of fighting about is it or is it not a security? Okay, well, but that's not the whole question, right? Because, like, let's let's grant X is a security. Then the question becomes, okay, we have this body of securities law. Does the technology address a risk that we've previously relied on regulation to address or introduce a new risk? And if so, how do we need to change the rules or how can we change the rules for these these models? Because, I mean, you know, if and I'm not saying this is the case, but just in the hypothetical where like, hey, you know, using this distributed model, all of these risks about like opacity uh, you know, market opacity, go away, right? You want to know what the price for something is? Look on the chain. Okay, well, then then the government doesn't need to force people, to force companies to do the things it's been forcing companies to do to, to address that issue, not because we're going to tolerate less protection for consumers. The consumers are getting the protection. They're just getting it from technology rather than from the rules. Conversely, it's also certainly possible that this technology introduces something that's like, wow, we didn't have to worry about this before. And then in that case, you know, rule, new rules may be appropriate. And so I would like, I would hope even if the SEC is going to say, you know, you can have my Howie test when you pry it out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> after that, then the next question becomes, well, okay, but then what do, what, what do we need to have orderly markets, consumer protection, and capital formation in this environment? And can we pare back some regulation to make it easier because the technology is helping? So I want to point out to me, I think it's, it's an extremely, extremely 
extremely useful insight that, that Brian just made, which is really, you, you know, <laughs> it's like, I'll take it. No, which is, which is, which, which is, and I get it because it's, it's, it's great. You know, I, I, I teach securities law. It's a fascinating question. Is a product a, a security or not? And, and, and that kind of question attracts an enormous amount of popular attention. But the real question, the real energy and, and, and the really important policy challenge is whichever way, excuse the, the pun, whichever side of the coin uh, oh. you, da, 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 oh. uh, that you come out on, right? Uh, you're going to have to ask yourself another uh, sort of a round of questions about, okay, so it's a commodity or so it's a security. So what are we going to do with it now? And you know, making a decision about, say, whether you know, whether or not a financial product is a security certainly has, from a purely regulatory sort of robotic analysis, implications for exchanges and whether or not an exchange or a venue is authorized to trade a security and custodial issues and all that. And that's great. And, and likewise, by the way, even if you deem a certain financial product to be a commodity, you're going to have to think through certain kinds of questions about consumer protection and, and even hedging, questions that you may not have necessarily had to think through with other kinds of more traditional uh, commodities like uh, gold and metals. But you still have to engage with the technology itself and to ask yourself, well, what exactly is the purpose of our rules and how do we achieve that mission? And one of the issues that I tried to bring up as an example, and I think this sort of illustrates Brian's point, is this question of disclosure. So let's say you, you, you assume for a moment that you're dealing in the world of an ICO, and as an ICO uh, that's a security, you have to provide certain kinds of disclosures. Well, you know, you're dealing with firms and companies and financial products that are very, very, very different from the kinds of companies and firms and financial products back in the 1930s when the 33 and 34 Act and the Investment Company Acts were released. Uh, we're not talking about a major firm that's moving to a new life cycle of development with years necessarily of financial statements and a financial history that's been tracked. You know, instead, you're dealing with these startups where the value proposition is in the technology itself. And, and you're going to want to know certain things about that technology. And the, the, the purpose of the disclosure is going to be based on whether or not investors understand what that technology is supposed to be doing and whether or not, as Brian had mentioned, there are certain anti-fraud rules and protections to make sure that that information has a large, a high degree of integrity. But then you have to rethink other kinds of questions. Once you move out of a expert space into the space of millennials or retirees, you know, talking about Ether or Ripple or, or Bitcoin or whatever it is, you have to make sure that the technology itself is disclosed in a way that's understandable, right? So that in and of itself makes us rethink questions like, what is a plain English disclosure, right? Which is one of the rules that's, that generally inhabits certain aspects of the disclosures that a modern company has to make. Well, you're going to have to tailor that concept to this particular space, right? So when we talk about people engaging in a clear exposition of their technology, how do you do it and in what parts of the disclosure will that kind of exposition be made? And you know, it's a very simple example, but it's a really important example. And there are other kinds of examples 
that highlight this point that I think Brian has made. You know, what when the technology changes, what new risks do you have and what new opportunities do you have? And how can you lever some of the opportunities in a way to protect investors where at the same time uh, understanding that you're not dealing with, you know, that, that frankly, you know, many of the tokens being issued in an ICO are not synonymous to, say, an automobile issuance of the 1930s and the 40s, you know, how do you craft your rules to speak to this new circumstance or context? And I think that that's really where a lot of the energy, the intellectual energy, the regulatory energy should be focused. And we can't necessarily just hold on and, and focus entirely on is something a security or not, because one last issue is I think these same kinds of questions should be introduced even, say, in commodities law world, um, because Bitcoin is not the same thing as gold. You can't melt it down and wear it around your neck. It's more intangible. And so it's a di- it involves different kinds of, of, of challenges and opportunities that even our derivatives regulators should be aware of when they're thinking through how to integrate this new financial product into our modern financial markets. Well, and there's an interesting movement afoot in the U.S. where, as we're kind of waiting for regulators to opine and waiting to see what Congress does, at the same time we're seeing those same bodies urge the industry itself, like, you know, hey, guys, come together as a group and set some of these standards. Like, how do we make these disclosures about how your token or your project works and how your ICO is structured and what does the board look like and who do we have in place to make sure that you're not, you don't have, you know, terrorists or someone trying to take advantage of this new technology? Um, or just someone flat out steal your money. And it's that effort, uh, which would be a self-regulatory organization, which we see in the financial services space already quite established. And they have a lot of authority to go, you know, require licensing or go after members that violate any of those sort of established norms that they put in place. Um, That seems to be in very early days right now. But it is definitely an idea that a lot of exchanges and some of the some of the cryptocurrency companies um, are, you know, at least kind of exploring, certainly the ones who are offering to come in and become regulated by the SEC or offering to uh, try and help push the industry into a more stable and regulated space. So I think that's something really interesting to watch moving forward. I'm glad you brought up the SRO issue. I'm, I'm curious, just from those conversations you have with those folks, maybe just from your observations of the field. Does it does it look to you like the future of any SRO is going to be these new firms that are already in in this space, or do you see the sort of existing financial SROs or trade associations that are maybe when we think of more traditional financial markets uh, companies, are they also acting to try to create some kind of SRO here? That's a good question. You know, Japan is maybe a model to look at in terms of a crypto SRO that has been successful. And that one doesn't really, that one really is specific to the cryptocurrency industry. That doesn't mean that that's what the US version might look like, if there even is one. Right now, it seems like there's kind of a lot of division and, and clickishness that's happening. You know, I want to be I want to be an SRO with my buddy Chris over here, but Brian, we're not sure <laughs> you to join. Uh-huh. Um, Wait, are you saying uh-huh. that the crypto uh, space is fractious and ornery? <laughs> I, I would never say so. <laughs> It is decentralized. It is. It is. It is, it is, it is, it is highly <laughs> distributed, and you know, and, and it's because different f- 
financial products, you know, exist along the, the you know different points of a spectrum as to are you a little bit closer to being deemed to be a security? You may have certain kinds of interest. You know, the the objectives of your financial product. You know, are you are you really focused on payments, right? And, and you're, you know, many of these currencies, many of these assets have a proposition or a value proposition that's more directly tied to the blockchain technology that they're using or deploying. And, you know, they could have different kinds of interests than others who are just looking to develop a modern day app for a cloud, you know, data storage system. And even the infrastructure providers can have very, very different interests depending on whether or not you're already a regulated entity, whether or not you have your eyes set on either acquiring or uh, registering as a regulated entity, or whether or not you view your competitive advantage as sort of sort of wandering off the farm a little bit, you know, you're going to have different priorities as to what kinds of policies and standards you want to adopt. And as a result, it makes it hard, I think, to coordinate a lot of the different actors. And I think one of the last real challenges is just that the definitions are, it's so hard to create definitions in this space. And a lot of times, even experts talk past one another because they have a certain conception or, or idea in their mind when you're using the word coin. They can have something, you know, they, you, they could have Bitcoin in their mind or they may have an ICO on their mind and therefore they're talking past one another. And it takes a lot of energy to coordinate just a lingua franca for the conversations before you even engage in the negotiation or, or the coordination process. And I think that that's why we're still not only at a very early uh, stage in the regulatory process, because they also have to develop their own regulatory language and categories for different issues, uh, but even the market, the private sector, is engaged in a very similar process. And that's a precondition to ultimately uh, launching a successful SRO that will draw in other market participants. Well, and one thing we haven't really touched on much yet is the global nature oh, of absolutely. ICOs and, oh, yeah. and, you know, tokens and these coins themselves. And, I mean, you want to talk about talking past one another, then what happens when we start <laughs> dealing with Chinese regulators, European regulators, South American regulators? I mean, this has there is a lot to be worked out in this space. And, you know, these exchanges are global. These ICOs are global. There's a good question about, you know, if we have Americans who are investing in these ICOs, then does the SEC get to reach through to everyone, just the Americans? I mean, there's a lot of territoriality and definitions to be worked oh, out. Oh, and, and, you know, this is such a great point because these assets are global assets, they're traded internationally. And just as different market participants can have different interests, certainly different countries, different governments have different interests as well. So, you know, if you're operating in a country like China where you have traditionally had a very close hold on your money supply, um, you're going to be or to have a little bit more skepticism about having flexible rules for some virtual currencies. And this is even outside the ICO space because it could impact your ability to uh, manage your, your, your capital account and the liberalization of your own currency, which is currently under underway with the renminbi. Then you move over to, to Europe, and Europe is going to have its own priorities and sort of fractious divisions between, say, uh, London, that may have a real interest in developing and cultivating financial innovation in order to navigate a process, a successful exit from the European Union, to perhaps the European Union itself looking 
to compete with uh, the United Kingdom by offering its own rules. And that's what you're sort of seeing in order to sort of grab market share at the very same time at which the United Kingdom is, is, is leaving. And all of this creates some real challenges for how you coordinate rules for uh, cryptocurrencies, for ICOs internationally. And, and, and this is just the beginning of that process. And you see some of the international standard setters trying to grapple with this. Both for the companies that are pursuing ICOs and the potential investor slash purchaser, depending on, on how it falls down, this, this territoriality issue also becomes a problem because you may not you may be a you know you may want to be a law abiding firm and you go and you get your license in Antigua or wherever and you're like okay well we're licensed and we're going to sell this product in and next thing you know the feds are knocking on your door and saying what what are you doing you can't do this and it's like well no we're we're licensed it's like yeah in Antigua enjoy the Antiguan market but otherwise you can't sell in on the basis of, even though there's no like geographic barrier or anything like that. I mean, there's no real logistical reason why you can't. And then we have things like Wyoming passing a a token utility bill where they actually seek to define what a utility token is and treat it as property rather than as a security. And, you know, we're going to have some interesting federalism questions here because traditionally property law is state law. The federal securities laws largely preempt. So where are we going to be drawing these lines? And you know, you could imagine a world. I mean, I know that the Clayton said that he wasn't anticipating any big changes, though, you know, it that may change potentially if what they see is states establishing alternative regulatory regimes that provide appropriate consumer protection. And they say, OK, if you're going to sell this just to people in Wyoming, you can treat it like a utility token because Wyoming, you know, there, there's that there's that general exemption provision in the securities laws where it's like, look, if, if you don't need to treat this like a security commission, SEC, you can decide not to. And so that may be a thing. I don't think they're going to they're definitely not going to just be like, oh, it's on the blockchain. Pfft, well, we don't need any of these rules now. I'm just, <laughs> let me just rip all these things up and throw them out the door. Go forth. Um, but if it's, hey, you know, we are limiting our sales to Wyoming and we're doing this pursuant to the Wyoming to- utility token law and Wyoming, the relevant Wyoming regulator is OK with what we're doing. Then, then you might start seeing some exemptions. And we haven't even gotten into questions like money transmitter issues, right? So even it, let, let, let's assume for the moment that at a, at a state level, for whatever reason, either there's been some kind of exemption uh, or, or, or I should say preemption by the SEC in which you don't have to worry about the states from a securities law perspective. You still have money transmitter laws that are at the state level. And these money transmitter laws... Uh, combined, obviously, with our national FinCEN anti-money laundering rules uh, that apply to money services businesses, which in turn have definitions for from a federal standpoint on money transmitters, uh, can still impact the business of even participants in ICOs. And you know, there's a patchwork of rules and regulations that go well beyond even securities regulators that w- will have to be navigated regardless again as to whether you know as to where you come out on as to whether or not a particular issuance 
uh, is a security or commodity or something else. Well, now that we've raised federalism, international regulation, monetary policy, and money transmission uh, in the last couple of seconds, and we're out of time anyway, I think I'm going to have to call mercy rule for our uh, for our, our <laughs> listeners. Uh, I do want to give them an opportunity to follow up with you guys because, as we've heard today, there's a lot of stuff going on here, and this isn't the whole conversation. So we're just going to go around the table, and if you guys want to give our listeners a, a Twitter handle or a bio page, somewhere they can kind of keep up with your work, uh, Lydia, we'll start with you. Happy to engage. You can reach me on Twitter at lbeyoud. That's E-L-L-E-B-E-Y-O-U-D. And I am at Brian R. Knight on Twitter. You can reach me on Twitter at Chris Brummer, D-R. Sounds good. Thank you guys for joining us, and thanks to our listeners. We'll probably have to have you all again back sometime when the SEC or the CFTC or Congress does something, and everything we've talked about has changed and is no longer relevant. <laughs> ICO2 Electric Boogaloo. Let's do it. I like nice. it. Go ahead and license nice. it now. But thank you guys for joining us. This is great. Thank, thank you. you.